C.S. Lewis um, at one time um, said that expressing praise and worship uh, for God was a difficult issue for him. In his little book called Reflections from the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, when I first began to draw near in my belief of God, and even after I had become a Christian, I found a stumbling block. And that stumbling block was the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. We all despise the man who demands constant assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people who surrounds every dictator, every millionaire, and every celebrity. And they are there simply to gratify the demands of the people. When I got that picture, Lewis writes... It was, once, uh, it was at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worshipers. It almost destroyed my striving after the Lord. The Psalms were particularly hard for me, he writes. I read in the Psalms, oh, praise the Lord with me and praise him. It was hideously like saying, what I want most is to be told that I am good and that I am great. That doesn't sound like that could be God. I tried to sort it out, and I finally came to this conclusion. I saw that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. Even in Judaism, the essence of the sacrifice was not really that men give bulls and goats to God, but that in so doing, God gives himself to men. If you read scripture, you know, especially the Psalms, uh, like C.S. Lewis indicated, you will discover that praise and worship is a big thing to God. <laughs> Why? Well, I, a number of reasons, I think. But one of them is because God's presence is manifested when we praise him. Psalm 22, verse 3 says, But you are wholly enthroned in the praises of Israel. Though God is omnipresent, <laughs> his presence is made obvious. His presence is made manifest. It is, it is shown, <laughs> it is put on display in our praises through our worship. Worship is a big thing to God. This morning, we begin our new sermon series, uh, Catching Fire, Igniting the Heart of Worship. And in this short series that we're going to be, uh, that leads up to our Advent series, we're going to explore this area of worship. Is worship, um, think about it, is it worship just coming to a big building and sitting in a Sunday morning worship service? Is that what worship is? Is worship just singing some songs, you know, um, listening to a sermon? Or is worship something more? I mean, really, what is worship? What really is worship? And, and since worship is such a big deal to God, how can our hearts and how can our lives be ignited to take a greater delight in him? 
Now listen, where I want to start this morning is by talking about some of the mistakes that we can make in how we approach God for worship. And we're going to explore those, um, this idea through uh, a very disturbing Old Testament story. Uh, it's a story about King David. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning. Now as you turn there, I, I got to tell you that before we dig into this story here, we need to get a little background, a little background uh, of what's taking place. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, after seven years of uh, brutal civil war and King Saul's death, David is finally, in chapter 5, uh, crowned as the new king of Israel, fulfilling God's promise to him. And then David uh, conquers Jerusalem and makes it his capital city. Then David, after that, he, he, he defeats the Philistines with God's intervention. And so now, you can just imagine, David is on top of, of the world. I mean, he is riding high. He's, it's all sunshine and, and happy days for this new king. So David, as we move into chapter 6, he decides to have this huge celebration. And central to his celebration is the act of moving the Ark of the Covenant into his new capital city, the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. So what was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark was a, a box made of wood and covered in gold. Um, and on top of the Ark um, were figures of two angels or uh, cherubim. The Israelites believed that the presence of God dwelt between those two angels, those two cherubim. In other words, the ark of God represented God's very presence among them. It was considered to be the most holy, most sacred object on all of the earth by the Israelites. Now you remember, the ark had been built um, at the time of Moses by God's direction and it was carried by the Israelites everywhere they went. Remember the stories. Um, you know, when they crossed the Jordan River, the water stopped flowing as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the edge of that river. Remember when the Israelites, they marched around that city of Jericho, and before those walls came a tumbling down, <laughs> the ark was carried around the city of Jericho as well. That's why it's so important for David to bring that ark back into Jerusalem after he was firmly settled on that uh, throne. Because the ark of the covenant, it symbolized God's presence. It symbolized God's approval. It represented God's support of David as king. So after his tremendous victory over the Philistines, David arranges for an enormous procession, celebration of 30,000 men singing and, and, and music uh, as they bring the ark to Jerusalem. But in the midst of their celebration, in the midst of their worship, David makes some huge, costly mistakes. Some mistakes I think we can learn from. Some mistakes that we can easily make when we come to worship, when we come and approach God. 
The first mistake I think we can make is if we treat God flippantly. Look with me, chapter 6, verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and his son Ahel, the sons of Abinab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahel went before the ark. Now notice here, instead of, this, uh, of the, carrying this uh, ark on the shoulders of the priests with poles, like the law, the law of Moses had told them to, what they did here is they put it on a new ox cart and started wheeling it down the road. Um, you got to ask, well, why, why, would they, why would they do that? Why would they decide to transport that ark that way? Why use an ox cart to carry the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem? I mean, why risk the wrath of God by directly disobeying the command of Scripture? Well, some have suggested it was because um, David and the Israelites had failed, uh, you know, to read the instruction manual. Manual. They had forgotten to go back to the law and, and discover what they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to move the ark. And since it had been a long time since they had moved the ark, they had simply forgotten that they were required to use the poles. Well, I, I might be able to buy that excuse, except when you go to another story, the same story in 1 Chronicles 13, which gives us a little more information on this event, it tells us that David consulted with priests and he consulted with Levites and he consulted with many other people. I mean, this uh, was not just some haphazard celebration that David just threw together. Oh, he'd given a lot of thought. And I have to believe that someone in that process would have certainly looked back at the Old Testament law and they would have seen how Scripture prescribed that the ark would be transported. Besides, think about this. The ark had to be put on that new cart, right? How'd they put that ark on the new cart? <laughs> I mean, they couldn't touch it or someone would have died. So they must have used poles to take that, cart, or that, that ark and put it on the, on the new cart. They had to use poles. So evidently, they knew that they had to use poles to move the ark, so why didn't they do it now? Well, I'm going to speculate a little bit, so forgive me here. Um, two ideas. First one is they might have done it because it was just easier. <laughs> um, it would have been much easier to move that ark on a cart and let the ox do all of the carrying than to have to carry that heavy box, the 10 miles that were required to go over the road to Jerusalem. A second thought might be that the, the reason why they chose to use the ox cart was because the Philistines had done it that way previously. I mean, back 100 years ago, before this, when the Philistines had returned the ark to Israel, they brought it back on a new cart. And God hadn't struck them dead. If it worked for the Philistines, why wouldn't it work for them? But see, God's people were supposed to know better, right? God had been very specific uh, concerning the ark. It had to be carried only by the priests 
and then only with special poles. By putting the ark on the cart, David ignored God's command. Do you remember what God told David's predecessor, you know, King Saul? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. David forgot those words. And he did exactly what you and I are so often tempted to do, which is to take God's word and redefine it so that it fits in with whatever we want to do. Yeah, Jesus, I know you say forgive your brother from your heart. And that's exactly what I'm doing to my brother in Christ. I'm forgiving them from my heart, but first, I want them to feel some of my righteous anger. (laughs) Jesus, I I know you you say love your wife as Christ loves the church. I got to tell you, that's what I am doing. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm faithful to her. I mean... That little pornography I get into every once in a while, listen, that's not a big thing. I mean, after all, not in my mind, it's not a big deal. Yes, Jesus, I know you want me to live a life of integrity, but listen, what I'm really doing, that that isn't a lie. I mean, it's necessary for me to to do that, to be able to, to do my job, to be able to advance in my career. We do that, don't we? We make the mistake of approaching God flippantly. And we dismiss his instructions. And we think, <laughs> no problem. Listen, God doesn't mind. Nah, he'll still accept me. He'll forgive me. He'll accept, accept my worship. And we lose the sense of awe of who God is. That brings us to a second mistake. See, we make the mistake, I think, also of approaching God irreverently. David and his parade, they, they continue to, to march on. The celebration continues casually without any consideration of God's power, or God's holiness, like a, a way a child might play around with fire, you know, until tragedy strikes. The ox pulling the cart stumbles and Uzzah and one of, the, one of David's men reaches out to, to catch the ark, probably without thinking, and he touches the ark to prevent it from falling. And because of this, God strikes him dead. Look with me at verse 6. And now when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and, the, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there because, beside the ark of God. You know, when we read a story like this, I mean, it hits us as terribly unfair, doesn't it? <laughs> Why would God kill a man? I mean, for an innocent mistake. I mean, it wasn't like Uzzah was deliberately touching the ark. He was trying to save it from falling. Why did God strike him dead? Because he he broke a rule? Listen, if that's the reason we want to say, number one, that's why I don't believe in God or religion. It's just all a bunch of rules. Or number two, 
That's why I could never get really close to God. He's just waiting for me to break the rules. And then, wham! God will suddenly zap me with something really terrible. I think many of us live with this deep-seated dread that our relationship with God is based on keeping the rules. And face it, we break the rules every day, don't we? But see, we have to understand that breaking rules is just a symptom. The rules are all about God and about our relationship with God. The rules say that there's a, something unique about God. God is holy. That means there's a chasm between God and us, a huge, uncrossable chasm. <laughs> you can't bridge it. You can't just say, well, listen, I, I, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I do nice things. I go to church. I'm righteous, uh, you know, kind of, and moral, sort of, you know. I mean, God's got to be okay with me. <laughs> Remember that the ark had stayed for a period of time in Abinab's house where his sons, Uzzah and Eho, may well have been, become accustomed to that ark's presence. It became just one of the, the furniture they had to walk around. <laughs> As they say, familiarity breeds contempt. And Uzzah having been around that ark in his home, could very likely have just forgotten the holiness that it represented. He forgot that God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews tells us, offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. It's a lesson I think Moses learned Firsthand out there in the desert when God spoke to him out of that burning bush. Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your sandals. So I think we can make that same mistake, right? We can so easily become too familiar with God and, and approach our holy God with this irreverent attitude without taking off our sandals. We can forget that God is a consuming fire, that he is holy. Annie Dillard spares no punches when she writes about this missing side of worship in one of her books. She writes this, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour? <laughs> Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. <laughs> the wrath of God is a fearful thing, a thing from a human perspective which may seem irrational, incalculable, uh, subjective. But stories like this one remind us that of the depth of our sins and the awareness uh, uh, and sovereignty of holiness of God. In the face of God's anger, we learn a, a, a 
in a new way that God is God and he's not to be trifled with. Even in the severity of this lesson, there is the comforting truth that there are boundaries that God simply will not allow us to cross. And if we learn that lesson well, we'll also learn that his anger, it lasts only a short time while his loving kindness and his righteousness are forever. And that brings us to our third mistake. We make the mistake of thinking that God is not good. I want you to notice David's reaction to Uzzah's death. Verse 8, look what he says here. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David's first reaction is one of anger. I mean, it's like ours, right? I mean, our response is like David's. David thinks this whole thing is completely unfair. I mean, that's my response to this story. And soon that anger of David's, it turns to fear. Look with me at verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. <laughs> um, I mean, there's nothing that kills a good party like God's wrath, is there? <laughs> so David scraps his whole celebration plans, and suddenly the Lord, who had given all those victories over the Philistines back in chapter 5, doesn't seem so good anymore. Things weren't happy days and sunshine anymore for David. David's now angry. David's now afraid of God. And out of that anger and fear, he decides he can't bring this God into Jerusalem, into his very home. Instead, he takes that ark aside and leaves it at the Gittites' house. According to research gathered through surveys, we live in a culture which about seven out of ten Americans believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the world today. In other words, despite all the popular books being published about atheism, most people still believe in God. But surprisingly, small percentage, only about 14%, actually worship him on any given Sunday. Bottom line, most people believe in God, but don't actually worship him. I think David's experience in these verses indicative of how many people in our country, um, our culture, view God. They believe he exists, but they just aren't sure if he's on their side, you know? They're not convinced of his goodness. Because God sometimes does things or allows things to happen that we just, you know, we just don't understand. And we get angry and afraid. For David, it was Uzzah's death. For people in our uh, culture, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, it might be the pandemic. Or it might be the latest natural disaster, you know, an earthquake or tsunami or, or hurricane somewhere. Or it might be more personal. It might be a personal tragedy in their own lives or some 
specifically challenging difficulty that they're going through. I mean, one of the first things people say outside the church, they ask is, why does God allow bad things to happen? I mean, why do innocent people die? Why is there such destruction in our world? Why, 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 right? You've heard that. And sometimes we have an answer. I mean, technically, we know why Uzzah died. I mean, he wasn't supposed to touch the ark. <laughs> but sometimes even an answer won't help. It still won't seem right to folks. It still might not seem right to us. Our answer doesn't take away our anger or fear. And because of the pain many have experienced, either on a cultural level or on a, on a personal level, many people have just put God on the shelf. They've put God aside. And like David, they just cannot understand him. Either they doubt his goodness and become angry, or they fear his power and become afraid. <laughs> In either case, they don't have any desire to worship him. Our culture, culture in general has left God at the Gittite's house. We see God as seemingly unfair and disturbing, and we worship accordingly. So we have to ask, where does this leave us? Well, in verse 11, we're told the ark stayed at the Gittite's house for three months and the Lord blessed him. We don't know exactly what that blessing was, but we can include, I think we can include pretty safely that good things came to him. <laughs> Look with me at verse 12. Look what it says. Verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of uh, because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, rejoicing. In other words, three months um, later, <laughs> David is reminded of why he wanted God near him in the first place. He's reminded of God's goodness. And because he wants the blessing of God for himself and for his kingdom, he decides to go back to his original plan and bring the ark to Jerusalem. And once again, there's this huge processional with music and rejoicing. There's joyful extravaganza, uh, extravagant celebration um, of God's goodness and, and, and worship. But this time, something's changed. In fact, look with me at verse 13. Look what it says here. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf, or fattened animal. Do, do you recognize something a little bit different? Do you notice what's changed? This time the ark is being carried. It wasn't on a cart anymore. It's being carried on poles on the shoulders of priests. Just as God had commanded David evidently has learned the danger of irreverent, flippant worship. This time he shows God the respect that God deserves. What we see here is a worship, I think, that's matured. David's view of God has grown. There is celebration and sacrifice, rejoicing and reverence, worship that praises God's goodness and is humble before God's holiness. 
It captures both sides. Yes, God is good and celebration is wonderful, but this kind of worship sees the other side of God as well. God is also mysterious and dangerous and we dare not approach him flippantly. The story pushes us, I think, to um, check our own attitudes, how we in our spirits, how we approach God as we come to worship. Do we approach God flippantly, casually, invoking the most powerful being in all the world as if he's some divine DJ, um, you know, we look to for entertainment on Sunday mornings? Or do we come with a sense of reverence and awe like the writer of Hebrews instructs us to? To use Annie Dillard's language, do we come in straw hats or do we come with crash helmets? (laughs) See, we make a terrible mistake when we approach God flippantly without a, a sense of reverence in our worship. Let me just finish with a passage I think is appropriate from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver take the children to meet Aslan. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Aslan is the great lion, the king of Narnia, and he represents Jesus in Lewis's story. The children are surprised when they learn that Aslan is a, is a lion. Lucy says, oh, I thought he'd be a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. <laughs> then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, Mr. Beaver said. Did you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. He's the king, I tell you. (laughs) Friends, I got to tell you, our God is good. He is very good, but he's not safe. Might we worship him accordingly? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this reminder of how important, what a big thing worship is to you. We can't treat you just casually, flippantly. But God, you're a holy, righteous God who is good. Might you continue to remind us of that truth, not just on Sunday mornings as we come to worship services, but through our week as we worship you each day, as we worship you as we go our way. God, might our worship um, make you manifest in our presence. In your son's precious name, amen.